if you guys don't know me, my name's Eric Kimsey. I, uh, I used to um, be one of you guys, and now I've converted to the dark side. I'm up at a church in, in Detroit, um, and uh, it's actually going really good. But um, I got to say that it is true that Michigan drivers are the worst. In all of the United States, they're the worst ones. Uh, in fact, on the way down here, on the way down here, I'm driving in the left lane, you know, I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm anxious, I'm like ready to get down here, and uh, I'm driving in the left lane, you know, five miles over, right, because that's the rule, five miles over, um, and the guy in the left lane is like cruising five under, and then him and the guy right beside him are just driving the same speed, and of course the guy in the left lane's a Michigan driver, and I was like, oh, this makes sense, because they're terrible, um, and the, it's true, it's true, they're all awful uh, drivers. I hate driving up there. They also have this thing called a Michigan left where you make U-turns like a thousand times before you get to where you want to go. It's terrible. Anyway, um, up there, I am, uh, I'm teaching seventh and eighth grade students primarily. It's going really well. The students are awesome. They want to learn, um, and they're really responding. They really, uh, want to learn. We just started a, a, a series on the Holy Spirit and, uh, I'm just, I'm really enjoying it. The church is great. And now I can say that I've been a part of two of the top tier churches in the United States, and that's here and there. And I honestly believe that. Like, I just love both places um, so much. And I think about you guys a lot. Uh, in fact, on my desk, I have three of those revolution cards that you guys pass out, and I use them as bookmarks. And I think about you guys, and I pray for you guys all the time. So, um, just wanted you guys to know that. Uh, this week, I am finishing up Dowdy's series. I don't know why he would let me do this, but I'm finishing up Dowdy's series um, that you guys have been going through the last three weeks so far, right? You started uh, the, the, the beginning of December, and, um, and he started with this idea. We went all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, back in Genesis, this idea that we needed a Savior. That God created us, he gave us one rule, and that was that we weren't allowed to eat the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, right? He, we were not allowed to eat the fruit. And it, I don't know, who knows if the fruit was really bad or if God was just setting a standard for us to just completely destroy, I don't know. But um, we broke that rule, that one rule. We broke the rule because we were tempted by our own desire, or our representatives, Adam and Eve, were tempted by their own desires to be like God, right? The Satan, who took the form of a serpent, tempted them. God just wants you to not be like him. That's why he doesn't want you to eat that. He knows if you eat that, you'll be like him. And that's how all of our sin starts, right? Every single sin that we commit at its core is because we want to be our own God. We want to make our own decisions. We don't want anybody to make any decisions for us. Right? We want to do what we want to do. And so we're a lot like Adam and Eve. And it's in that rebellion that Adam and Eve um, started that infected everything, infected all of creation. It's the source of all hurt, all pain, all suffering, all death. 
And so we all act just like Adam and Eve. Contrary to the saying, the root of evil is not money, it's our own desire to be our own God, right? Every evil thing in the world is produced by our desire to be God. And so, right there, God was good enough. And in Genesis 3, right after um, Adam and Eve messed up, he speaks in Genesis 3.15, right? 3.15. He talks about how he's going to send somebody to crush the serpent's hand, uh, the head. He's going to send a savior. He's going to conquer the evil that we have created. He would send the savior that we needed, right? So that's what you talked about the first week. And then the next week, Dowdy talked about how all through the Old Testament, God makes promises over and over and over that he's going to send a savior, that he's going to make it right. He reiterates that same promise from Genesis 3 over and over again. And not only that, but he makes different promises to his people, to different people throughout the Old Testament. And he keeps every single one of them. Over and over again, God shows his faithfulness to his creation. Even when his creation never held up their end of the bargain, ever, he kept his promises. And even though it took thousands of years, we don't even know how how long exactly. It was from the Garden of Eden, Eden to the birth of Christ. But for thousands of years, God kept making the same promise of a Savior. And we knew he would come through with that promise. We knew that we could bank on God's promise. One, because he's God, right? He's God. He's the one that can do it. If there's anyone who can keep a promise, it's God. He has the power to do it. And two, because God never, never went against one of his promises. He continually showed himself faithful through the entire Old Testament and even to today. And so finally, God makes good on that promise from thousands of years. And last week, you guys talked about appropriately right before Christmas. How did that work out? That the Savior was born. Jesus was sent by God. He's the Son of God, fully God and fully man. The only one who could complete the mission of reconciling us back to God. And so Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. Perfect. Lived the life that we could not live so that he could take the punishment that we cannot bear. He took the punishment um, that we deserve. And he took that punishment on the cross. I, don't, I actually don't know if you actually talked about the cross much, did you, last week? Yeah, a little bit, right? So, but that was the purpose of Jesus coming to live as a man. That was the purpose. You don't, for Christmas, we don't celebrate that Jesus, this pretty baby boy or whatever, right? He is, he's so cute, and, and all the little pictures show him with the animals around him, and uh, that's not even in the Bible. Um, but, it show, you know, we're not celebrating a baby. 
We're celebrating that God took on flesh and he lived the life that we could not so that he could die in our place. That's what we're celebrating. That is what we're celebrating. And so he offered to take that punishment for us. If only we would trust him and follow him. That's it. Trust him, follow him. That's, that's all we needed to do. He offers it to us. That's the difference between him taking the punishment for us or us taking the punishment ourselves. Trust him, follow him. That's the difference. That's the, that's the only thing. And so finally, this week, um, we get to uh, the final section of this sermon series, which is on the resurrected Savior, right? That Jesus did not stop by dying on the cross and being put in a tomb, but that he rose three days later. And I don't think that there's anything, any um, part of, uh, of the Bible, any doctrine that captures my heart more than the resurrection. And I think that we sell it short a lot, right? Because everybody goes to church on Easter. Everybody knows about the resurrection. And I think that the familiarity of what we think about the Bible and what we think about Easter can be our worst enemy. The, the fact that we know it so well can hold us back. We can't, it can hold us back from realizing how important it is. And so it's my prayer tonight that we can look at the text and we can, um, we can really strip our hearts bare on, on what implications Jesus rising from the grave has to do with our lives. And that's, that's what I want for me. And that's what I want for you. And the resurrection, I think, is, is it's interesting. It's captivating because who doesn't want a second chance, right? Anybody here who would not take a second chance on something, right? If somebody gave you an opportunity to have a clean slate, have a second chance, live a, the same life over again, right? There's a whole movie on it. Groundhog's Day? Anyone? Who wouldn't? None of us. We would all take that chance. We all have regrets. We all have things that we have screwed up on, and we all know that we are broken, that we're hurting, that we can't do it, that we can't um, be good enough on our own. Like, there are things that we even do, sinful things that we do, where we think, why did I do that? And your, your heart breaks over a sin that you commit over and over and over again, and you just can't seem to be better. You want to be better, but you just can't be better. And some of us don't even want to be better, which is even probably a better place to be if you're here, right? So not only did Jesus take our place on the cross, um, but just as importantly, he rose three days later. Have you ever considered, though, why Jesus was resurrected? Why? He already paid my sins, paid for my sins on the cross. What's the point of him raising from the dead three days later? What's the point? Isn't the important part that he, he paid for my sins so I don't have to pay for them anymore? And so have you ever considered that question? Why was Jesus resurrected at all? Why was it important? And I want to start in that first, first Corinthians 15. Um, 
Hopefully you guys have turned there by now. And uh, we'll go ahead and read uh, verses 14 through 19. And if Christ has not been raised, then all, all of our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless, and we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. And that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope is in Christ, and if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. These are tough words to consider. That that Paul is saying that if the resurrection never happened, we're to be pitied more than anyone else on the face of the planet. Because that's how much the Christian faith relies on the resurrection. That without the resurrection, there is no forgiveness of sins. How's that work? I thought Jesus paid it on the cross. Without the resurrection, what we believe is useless. We're wasting our time, and if, it, if it's not true, that's what Paul's saying. And so this, um, this is because when, when Christ rose from the, the grave, this is something I've been looking at recently, that all throughout Jesus' life, he performs these miracles, right? Performs these miracles. He turns water into wine. He walks on water. He calms the storm with a single word. He heals people with a single word. He raises people from the dead even. And so all throughout his life on this earth, he performs miracles. Well, what was that all about? What was that for? Was he just trying to make the world a better place? Was he uh, just trying to show off um, all his God powers or what? I think what Christ is doing in his miracles is that he's, he's showing his authority over nature. He is showing that he has control. That just like the beginning of John says, that in the beginning the word was with God and it reveals later in 1 John that the word is Jesus. And in creation, Jesus had a hand. He, uh, in fact, the, the, uh, John speaks of Jesus being the power by which God created. That he was the word. Now, I don't know um, how far we can take that, but I do know Jesus was there. I do know he was a part of creation. And so just like God, Jesus has authority over nature. And that's what I believe he's displaying, that he is God and he has authority over nature whenever he um, performs miracles in his life. And so with his resurrection, though, I think he's showing a different kind of authority. An authority over not just the natural world, but the spiritual world. That Jesus has authority over sin and the death that is caused by that sin. 
He has the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to remove sin. He has the authority to completely wipe it out. So Jesus is displaying that he has the authority over that sin. He does. And I, and I also think it's interesting that if we look at all the world religions and see um, many, many I, won't, I, won't be, uh, 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 I won't generalize and say that all of them, but many of them say, you can be better. You can do better. You can earn it. You can earn the next level of, of whatever. You can, you can uh, uh, become godlike by being good enough. But it gives you no power to do that. It gives you no ability to do that. But when it comes to Christianity, whenever it comes to what Christ laid out, Jesus is the only founder of any religion that conquers sin. He conquers the brokenness of the world. He conquers death. So it's not about you being better, but it's about him being better. If you worship Jesus, you worship the God who breathes new life into dead people. If you worship Jesus, he's the one who takes pain and turns it into relief. If you worship Jesus, he's the one that can take anxiety and turn it to peace. If you worship Jesus, you worship the one that conquers the grave. He takes your death away, your brokenness, your pain, your suffering, and turns it into new life. And that's what he is doing through his resurrection. That's what he's displaying. He's displaying that new life that we can have in him. But maybe some of you are skeptic about that, right? Maybe some of you are like, ah, the resurrection, that's, come on, man. Like, that's, that's not a real thing. Uh, anyway, I was just watching, um, what was it? What was the show we were watching? Proving God on History Channel? Don't watch that garbage. It was terrible. Um, but they tried to spend like all this time explaining how these miracles can happen uh, scientifically, right? Um, that the, the waters uh, could recede just right so that the Israelites could, um, could cross the Red Sea. And, and that's fine. God may have done it that way. Um, but to completely take away um, the godness out of uh, any given miracle, I don't know if that... Uh, helps us at all in, in, in what we believe. But some of you might be skeptic like that. Some of you might try to um, come up with excuses. Well, you know, there, over the course of 2,000 years, people have spent a lot of time and energy trying to disprove the resurrection. Scholarly articles, books, documentaries, trying to disprove Jesus' 
resurrection. And not a single theory has come forth that makes any sense at all. Not a single one. And I think it goes to show how much weight it carries in the Christian faith and into a world that doesn't, doesn't believe that it just causes them fits, that they have to disprove it, right? If it was that ludicrous, they wouldn't have to try to disprove it, right? But there is real historical evidence that points to that Jesus was resurrected. In fact, we've talked about that before. Last spring, maybe the fall before that, we, we talked apologetically. How do, we, how do we argue for the historicity of Jesus? How do we argue for the historicity of his resurrection? And I would encourage you guys to go back and look at that. But real quick, I'll just go through four major theories. Real quick, this isn't the point of my sermon, but for you guys, your edification, you can look these up, and if somebody tries to pull them on you, you can just immediately know how ridiculous they are, right? So um, one major one is the swoon theory. You guys ever heard of this one? That uh, Jesus uh, on the cross, he just passed out, right? Um, forget the fact that they stabbed him in the side with a spear and, uh, and that Jesus just kind of passed out um, and the Roman soldiers put him in, in the tomb and then Jesus like snuck out later and went and saw his disciples. But if you think about that for half a second, you would realize that dude hung on a cross all day. He had like serious wounds in his arms and his legs and a spear shoved through his heart. And we'll just assume that, okay, Jesus, um, um, Jesus wasn't really killed by the Roman guards who were like pros at killing people and executing people. Um, we'll just go along with that and say, yeah, he got put in the tomb, right? He was cool. He, was, um, he woke up in the tomb and then he decides to sneak out. What kind of shape do you think Jesus was in to roll away a big stone in front of his tomb? Or what kind of shape do you think he was in to appear to his disciples and for them to genuinely believe? See this man who is bleeding and clearly knocking on death's door and genuinely believe that he conquered death. Right? He looks like he's about to fall over. But those disciples, if you look in, uh, in, in, uh, later on in the Gospels and also in the book of Acts, and if you look at what they do throughout the epistles in the New Testament, you can see that these men truly believe that Jesus was resurrected, that he was the conqueror of death, that he was the conqueror of sin, not some dude that looked like he was about to fall over. They really believed it. Another major theory is that um, all of Jesus' followers had hallucinations and they saw uh, what they thought were Jesus um, because they were in so much grief over Jesus' death that they saw hallucinations of him and he spoke to them and they spent time with him. And the problem with that is the biblical account and also other historical accounts say that many, many people, upwards of 5,000, saw touched, hung out with Jesus. And we have zero scientific basis for mass hallucinations. None. 
It's utterly ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense. The third major theory is that they were all so distraught, so um, grief-stricken that they went to the wrong tomb. Right. Um, So, yeah, all of his disciples, they went to the wrong tomb. Every single one of them, and they all thought, yeah, this is the right one. Um, All of them. Now, I'm okay. All right. Maybe. Maybe they were all really distraught, right? They went to the wrong tomb. But the problem with that is the Roman officials that spent the next 100, 200 years trying to squash the Christian uh, religion, if they knew that their disciples were idiots and went to the wrong tomb, why didn't they just dig Jesus up and show everybody the body? But they didn't do that because they didn't have the body. Finally, the number one theory is that his disciples stole his body. The Bible even says in Matthew 28, if you were to turn there, we're not going to turn there now, um, but it, it says that the officials bribed the Roman guard to say that his disciples stole the body. Right, so this is like the oldest theory, all the way back from the first day, that the, 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 um, the officials were so mad about this, so upset about this, that they would bribe other people, the Roman guards, to say that his disciples stole the body. Because, you know, his disciples, who were fishermen and, 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 uh, and, and tax collectors, they were the ones um, who were able to fight through a whole Roman guard and steal the body. But why do, why do I believe this? Why do I find uh, Jesus' resurrection so compelling? One, there were tons of witnesses. Tons of witnesses. More than 500 of them. Right? To the point where in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, I think we're going to throw it up there. If you just go back a little bit in that same chapter, Paul writes, I passed on to you what is most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he had... Excuse me. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. So Paul does not even try to argue the fact. He just said, hey, if you don't believe us, go talk to one of the 500 people that saw him. Most of them are still alive. That's the argument he makes. That's it. Like that's how little of an argument he has to make. Go talk to one of the 500 people. We're not all in on this. All right? They saw him. Go ask him. And the biggest reason why I wholeheartedly believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fact that his apostles, his disciples, kept up that story that Jesus was resurrected raised from the dead, spent time with them, talked about the Bible with them, ate with them, 
hung out with them, touched them, gave them a mission. And then he ascended into heaven. And those guys, they spent their entire lives wholeheartedly believing that. They spent their entire lives seeking to spread the news that Jesus was the risen Savior. They spent their whole lives traveling around and telling everybody that truth because they wholeheartedly believed it. And they were beaten, they were killed, and they were exiled. Some of them, they'd get beaten and thrown out of a town and walk back in the next day and start preaching again. You don't do that if you're trying to keep up a lie. Like there comes a point where one of those guys is breaking and they gain nothing for it. Absolutely nothing. These guys risked everything. Their families, right? Some of them had wives. They risked their lives for that truth because they knew it was true. They didn't believe a lie. Would you die for a lie? Maybe one of you. Maybe if you're really like, you're that, you're that deep into it, you're like, oh, I, can't, I can't, can't give this up now. Everybody will know I was lying. But not 12 of you. It wouldn't happen. They believed it. And they lived it. They turned into different people after Jesus was resurrected. And I know that these arguments aren't exhaustive. They're not detailed. That's not the point of what I'm talking about. But the point is that if you have doubts, I want you to know that there are answers. And I want you to come and talk to Doughty. I want you to come and talk to me. We can point you to resources to, to show you there is reason to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. So what then does the resurrection have anything to do with us personally? All right, so Jesus was raised from the dead. He went to heaven. What's that got to do? Why do we teach that on Easter? Why do we talk about that all the time? Well, let's turn to 1 Peter uh, 1, 3 through 5. Do you guys have the page number? First Peter chapter one verses three through five. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that has been kept. In heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So why did Jesus come back to life? Why did Jesus raise from the dead? Part of that is to seal you to lock in an inheritance for you in heaven. It's through Christ's victory over death 
and sin, right? So the, the consequence of sin was death. And so by conquering death, Jesus conquers sin. And through that, he secures our inheritance as sons and daughters of, the, of, of God, in the kingdom of God. He secures that for us. He, you know, a lot of people talk about an, insur- an assurance of salvation, right? Are you sure? Are you sure you have salvation? Are you sure you're saved? A lot of people talk like that. But in reality, if we look at what Scripture says, that if you're a follower of Jesus, it's sure. It's going to happen. You have assurance. That's it. He did the work, not you. Because whenever we talk about our assurance of salvation, what we're doing is making it about us. The problem is that it's about him. It's a gift from him. He already took care of it. It's secure. It's done. Jesus paid it all. We don't have anything to worry about. Jesus secured that with his resurrection. And that's what 1 Peter 1 says right there. Another reason that Jesus' resurrection matters for us more immediately, right now, not later, not in heaven, not when we die, but right now, It's Jesus' victory over death coupled with his payment for our sins on the cross that means that he has washed us clean and prepared us to be his followers. And he's going to send the Holy Spirit to take care of the rest, to do the rest of the work, to sanctify us for the rest of our lives. He's, it was through his resurrection that he finished that preparation for us to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We can um, see, actually, in John 16, you guys don't have to turn there, it'll be uh, up on the screen behind me. John 16, Jesus is hanging out with his disciples in verses 5 and 6. He says, But now I am going away to the one who sent me. And not one of you is asking where I am going. Instead, you grieve because of what I have told you. Right? So the disciples are real distraught. They don't want Jesus to go. They're not ready for Jesus to go. They're not done learning. They're not done being his followers. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. But if I do go away, then I will send him to you. Jesus is saying that it's better for him to go than to stay, because if he goes, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to actually send the Spirit of God to dwell in his followers. This is huge. That Jesus, in his stead, is going to send someone just like him to actually live in us, to guide us, to empower us, to embolden us. How many of you have ever thought, just by a show of hands, it would be so much easier to be a Christian if Jesus were here right now? Right? It would be so much easier if I woke up 
and I went down, and Jesus was already making eggs and bacon, right? Like, we were going to hang out today, me and Jesus. And uh, I could totally follow Jesus if that was the kind of relationship we had. Jesus had that kind of relationship with his disciples. And they still were awful, right? Read the Gospels. Um, They were terrible. They screwed up all the time. Jesus knows that that's not what we need. Jesus knows that we don't need him physically side by side with us as our best friend through life, but that he says that it is actually better for him to go so that he can send the advocate, the Holy Spirit, to live in us. That as much as we could probably follow somebody physically, that heart change doesn't happen externally. It happens internally. That he's sending the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. If you looked at Romans 8.11, which I, I don't think I sent that. That's not a big deal. If you looked at Romans 8.11, Paul says that it's actually the, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that dwells in you if you're a follower of Jesus. The same exact one. He's with you now, right? The Holy Spirit and Jesus, they're both God. They both have the same um, will. And he's with you if you are a follower of Jesus. He is indwelt in you if you follow Jesus. So we can't downplay that. We can't downplay the Holy Spirit. Because I know... Uh, that I've certainly thought, uh, yeah, um, the Holy Spirit thing, that's, uh, that's real great, uh, Jesus, but it would be really a lot easier if, like, you were living in the Rev House with us. Like, that would be totally easier. Um, I would be able to follow you more faithfully. But we can't cheapen the Holy Spirit like that. We can't downplay the fact that he's enough to lead us, to embolden us, to overcome sin, to glorify God with our lives, to share the gospel with others around us. He's more than enough that he's just as good as Jesus sitting in the room next to us, hanging out with us. Like Jesus said, it is to our advantage that Jesus goes away so that the Holy Spirit can come and dwell inside of us. So what does the Holy Spirit have to do with the resurrection, though? How'd you get on this, Eric? I had a plan. What does, what does the Holy Spirit have to do with the resurrection? But that he, that the, the, the spiritual resurrection that Jesus secured for us through his physical resurrection, the new life that he has set for us through his resurrection can only be lived through the Holy Spirit. That the only way we can live in light of Jesus' resurrection as, as, as us Christians, followers of Jesus, desiring to live for him, desiring to live the new resurrected life that we're told that we have in the Bible, that we can only do that through the Holy Spirit. 
he allows us to live that, res- that resurrection every single day. So what, what now? What, what do we do with this? What do we, uh, what do we uh, walk away with? What, what does this matter at all? Well, now we know we have the Holy Spirit, right, dwelling in us, allowing us to live for Christ, living a new resurrected life for him. What's next? Well, I think it's important to look at the last thing Jesus said right before he took off, right before um, he ascended into heaven. Any of you guys know what that is on, let's say, Matthew, right? Matthew 28, that's a big one. Matthew 28, the last thing that he tells them is what we call the Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. And Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And I think he's referring to the Holy Spirit. That he is dwelling in us to the end of the age. He is with us every single day. If you are a follower of Jesus, he is with you right now. He is helping you to understand scripture. He is helping you to be engaged with scripture. He is going to help you to worship in a couple of minutes. And he's also going to help you to carry this out. Going to the ends of the earth and telling them that good news. That Jesus is not dead. He is not in the grave. He's a resurrected king. He's the resurrected savior. I think we really have to be serious about that command that if we truly believe that the only way to be reconciled to God is through Jesus then we must share it that might come in a lot of different ways that might come in in inviting people to church that might come in having conversations about the gospel with your friends that might involve you leading a bible study that might involve you walking up to some random person and and showing them love by buying them groceries or buying them gas and then telling them that you have done that because Jesus has done much greater for you. It might come in all different ways. But we have to take that seriously. And that starts with truly believing that the resurrection has a point. That it really happened. That Jesus really conquered the grave for you. And that through the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to live the resurrected life that he desires for you. He's the one who emboldens you and helps you to share that gospel. I want us to do that. I want us to do that in Portsmouth. I want to do that in Detroit. I want to do that in my family. 
And that's one thing I've always appreciated about revolution is that we've always been very committed to desiring to share the gospel and, and the rest of it can be set aside. That we want to share the good news about Jesus and what he's done for us. So if that's not a serious commitment for you in your life and you say you follow Jesus, you must reconsider whether you follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that through your word, through... um, through your Holy Spirit, that you're, you're speaking to us um, through this service and through this worship and through uh, this message that you would uh, guide us to being bolder for you in our lives, that we wouldn't stop at, at the door here as we walk out, but that this would affect change in our lives, that we know that your resurrected Life means that we have resurrected life. That you've done that to secure for us a spirit of power and not a spirit of weakness. A spirit of boldness, not a spirit of fear. And I pray that you would lead us to be bold for you, that we would desire to share the gospel in, in any way we can, in any way you can, that we wouldn't depend on ourselves, but that we would depend on you, that our desire to see others know you would outweigh our desire to, to be comfortable. That we would be overwhelmed with hurt for other people that need you. Pray that you would uh, work in our hearts right now, even as we worship, that we would lay down any insecurities, anything that we think is holding us back. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.